This is Accentricity, a podcast where I examine the eccentricities of language and identity. This is part two of my special student episode. In this episode, you'll hear from some more of the excellent students I've been teaching this year. Again, I won't be introducing the students within the episode audio. I tried that and it just sounded a bit weird and awkward. Um, But if you go to the episode description, you'll find a list of the speakers in order of appearance. This is part two of The Best Thing I've Learned About Language, featuring the students of English Language and Linguistics at the University of Glasgow. So yeah, tell us about what you did for your undergraduate dissertation. Um, So for my undergraduate dissertation, I was looking at trans speakers and how they kind of negotiate identity through speech and the voice. Um, And I was focusing on two... Uh, variables. One was S and the other was creaky voice. So with creaky voice, basically it's when your voice sounds like this. Um, And that's kind of, in UK varieties of English, generally more associated with male speakers. And the other variable that I was looking at was S. Um, So what I was looking at was kind of how high or low the S sounds. Um, So Typically, women tend to have a more kind of further forward, an S that's produced further forward in your mouth that sounds a lot higher, so it's more like S, and then men tend to have a slightly more further backwards in the mouth produced S, uh, which sounds more kind of S, so it's more like S and S. don't know if you can hear that, but I'm trying my best to do the distinction. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, so I was looking at how trans speakers use those variables, comparing um, trans masculine speakers who are, I defined basically for my study as anyone who was assigned female at birth, but now identified as something else. Uh, and I was comparing them with trans feminine speakers, so anyone assigned male at birth who now identified as something else. Um, and I was kind of expecting that people would try to distance themselves from the gender norms of their assigned gender, um, but I didn't really find that. Um, there was kind of... Differences between the two groups in S, um, with trans masculine speakers having the higher sounding S and trans feminine speakers having the lower sounding S, generally, not always, there was kind of overlap between the two groups. Um, And then for creaky voice use, they were kind of all just the same. Mm. I had a couple of speakers who were really creaky, but it didn't really have anything to do with their gender. Um, Yeah, so I kind of put that down to... A couple of different factors, um, two that I thought were quite important were people's environment. Um, So whether they were out as trans to people in their life, if they were living stealth so people didn't know they were trans, or um, if they were living uh, as the gender that they were kind of assigned at birth, if they hadn't kind of told people yet, or if they didn't pass as the gender that they were kind of attempting to present as to the world. So if people were not able to kind of present fully as the gender that they were wanting to present as, um, then they talked about in the interviews that I had with them, they kind of had to speak in a way that they, um, speak in a way kind of closer to the gender that they were assigned at birth, uh, kind of out of safety and because it, yeah, because it was easier for them to do it like that because it was safer. Um, And then the other one uh, was... The other kind of main factor that I thought was quite important was 
people's socialization experiences. So these were quite kind of gendered thing. These were quite kind of social um, aspects of people's voices that they'd kind of been raised into speaking that way. And so some people thought, um, some people kind of talked about the fact that it was hard for them to change um, their voices. Um, and they didn't know that I was looking at S and creaky voice. Um, but basically people talked about the fact that even though they wanted to change parts of their voices, they found it really hard because it wasn't didn't feel kind of natural t- for them to sustain it in conversation. What's your favourite thing that you've learned about or studied? Um, the thing I find quite interesting is, was, see, like, the social linguistics here. Um, I'm quite proud working class um, in company and um, realising how sort of class influences speech when I was looking. Um, obviously, with the working classes and then you're looking at local dialects and the stigma surrounding stuff like that. And it wasn't until I'd actually came that when we were doing phonetics or that and I was talking to other people who brought my accent can actually quite be um, and I find that now I'm quite aware of it now see when I'm talking I realise how broad I am in um, certain words I'm using um, I'm actually going to bother it and the house I'll be talking and I'll be like the rain stop running about come down here and my partner will be like no it's come down here stop running about and all and I'm like, I'm like, she's proud to be Scottish let her talk in her Scottish accent so that stuff sort of really intrigued me um, it was all different parts of it and all it was interesting learning about the history um, the way it developed, and once again, how that's influenced by social class, like the use of Latin and laws and stuff, and then the court and the French, and how that all transpired there. Um, aye, was, so, like with Scot in Scotland, Scots and stuff. Uh there was all. It's, it's, it's mad how you pick up wee things in class, and you go to see like we've done name studies, and mm. then you were learning um, what, what sort of makes the name up your place and stuff. And then I find myself driving about looking at the signposts and I'm like, oh, that must mean this and that must mean that. And my partner's like, I don't care. Stop talking about it. I love that about linguistics that, like, what you learn, does it's got a habit of not staying in the classroom. Like, mm-hmm. you, as soon as you go back out into the world, you sort of start noticing all these things you learned about and how it lines up with your life. I think that's really good. Uh, and that's it's actually quite good because you realise I'm actually taking something in. Because sometimes you can be sitting there writing all this down and all that and... I'm not taking any of this in, it's not until you get later on you find yourself using it. Aye, and I find a lot of what I learn like sinks in and then comes out again later. So, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I don't realise, I feel like I'm just learning. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm learning about these little details, but then it kind of spits into a picture with your life and the rest uh, of the world. Especially and... the way um, English language subjects overlap. It was always quite good because you would be doing like semantics and pragmatics and there would be a wee bit and then you would be doing name studies and then it would also there would be a wee bit of connection. So really what's semantics and pragmatics? Yeah, that was like you know, like it's semantics and you know, like the meaning of words and um, how they change over time. And that was all quite interesting, I know. Um, I actually had a wee guy at working days and I, for some reason I was talking to him about it and he was pure interested about how like the word's vulgar. But now it means like disgusting, but it used to mean like the common people. There's another social class aspect. Uh, it's like the vulgar were the common class, but because they were low brow and never done anything, it was like, oh, it's vulgar. <laughs> so now it's taking on that sort of meaning that it's, um, it's to be looked down upon, it's dirty, you know what I mean? Um, so stuff like that was interesting. It does interest people, but it's, it's something you never really think about. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's quite amazing the, um, the way that 
words can just change meaning um, throughout time. So for me, what I found quite interesting was um, something called accommodation theory, um, which is something I, I looked at a bit um, in, a, in a project I did this year. And it's like basically um, sort of explaining possible reason why when um, two people talk to each other, um, one of them might start to sound a little bit more like the other and um, pick up some of the, the way they speak. Um, so yeah, that's why I was... Have you ever noticed yourself doing it? Yeah, that's like particularly why I find it interesting because I've um, quite often been told, um, like I lived in Australia for a little while and I had um, a couple of times an Australian person would be surprised when they found out I wasn't Australian. Wow. Um, and How long were you there for? I was there for uh, a year and a half. Wow, so that's pretty quick then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then did you come back to Scotland and just sounded Scottish again? Yeah, and I mean, I don't think I actually sounded Australian, you know, the whole time I was there or anything, but I guess I maybe just, like, picked up wee, wee bits and pieces that, um, yeah. And I think I don't have a particularly strong accent anyway, so I feel like it's kind of like a bit of a blank canvas to, like... Chameleon. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but I had it with an American um, quite recently as well who said, um, like, he thought a lot of my vowel sounds were uh sounded very american while i was talking to him that's really interesting you could study yourself one day i you know yeah. Sure, yeah um so tell us about the project you did on accommodation then um so i did a project looking at uh, russell brand um so basically i took two interviews that he did um in his podcast um, and I did one with um, Jordan Peterson, who's Canadian, and one with John McAvoy, who's English and I think from Essex, so he's got a similar accent to Brand. Um, and I kind of looked at, well, I looked at um, his use of glottal stopping. Um, so like when you say butter instead of butter. Um, and um, I wanted to see how, uh, how it changed between, between the two. Um, and I found that when he was speaking to John McAvoy, who does use uh, quite a lot of glottal stopping, um, he was doing it uh, about 75% of the time compared to like 48%, I think, with uh, Jordan Peterson, who... Ah, so like, so he said, did you say 70% the first time? Uh, 75. 75, so he was using the glottal stop 75% of the time and then like to the other. Yeah. So like butter 75% of the time and then butter the other yes, percentage exactly yeah. and then right so when he was with so when he was with Jordan Peterson he did it a lot less yeah and Jordan Peterson being Canadian do they not have glottal stops usually no uh not audibly like in the they would normally say butter yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah they'd have a tap yeah ah so so was he did it sound like he was kind of matching the person that he was speaking to then a little bit yeah it did I mean it didn't sound like that when I initially just listened to them like you couldn't tell it wasn't obvious but, you know, when I went through and looked at each individual case, it's like there was a definite trend that he was in. Uh, so it's like on a sort of like linguistically microscopic level rather than, yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess so, yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess it's interesting as well because he wasn't, yeah, obviously he wasn't, he wouldn't have sounded Canadian with Jordan Peterson, right? No. And he was still using quite a lot of glottal stops, but just moving in the direction. Of yeah. Him. And I did notice like just one instance where he actually used a tap, so like butter. Uh, 
I think that the most interesting thing that I've learned, I think I learned this already in first year, but it's like become more pronounced now, um, is how intertwined uh, language and identity are. I hadn't really thought about that beforehand. <laughs> yeah, totally. And like, sort of the more you, the more you think about it, one of my favourite things about linguistics is how it kind of blows open the whole world, right? Because yeah. like you learn about these things in class and then you see them all yeah. the time in the world yeah. around you. Um, I think it's quite like a personal thing for me because I'm, I'm Finnish. So, and we don't have, uh, for example, social class and language are not as tied together in That's Finland interesting, yeah. um, as they are in the UK. Like my the my dialect nobody would really think much about me they would just think that I'm from this region and that's Mm it um whereas here you can hear from people's speech which social class they maybe belong to or Mm. identify with and people have really strong ideas of like what is middle class speech right and what sounds posh and what sounds working class and what sounds right and what sounds wrong yeah and that's not so much a thing in Finland. No, it's really not. I think that that's really interesting. Fin- Finland is like um, on the official level bilingual because um, mm. we have a very long history with Sweden. So there's Swedish speaking spe- speaking people and Finnish speaking people, and I think there's a lot of <laughs> Finnish Swedish people. I think there's this stereotype that they're really rich, but rich and happy (laughs) (laughs) in comparison to like Finnish speaking Finnish people. But I think that's pretty much the only like level of like difference between the languages. So there's not really even like a sense of people preferring one variety of Finnish to another. I don't think, I really don't think so. I think that like the biggest biggest thing that someone would think about someone uh speaking a certain dialect is that if they're from like Helsinki area that's that's like they have a specific way of speaking there that's a lot of loan words from Swedish and Russian um so I guess they would think that oh they're from Helsinki and they're this sort of a person Mm. um and also if you're from like Lapland or something maybe they would think that you're very like countryside kind of a person yeah, but yeah. I think that's the extent of it as far as I know <laughs> I don't really pay that much attention to it to be <laughs> honest I think yeah so that must be so interesting coming from Finland then and of course you've been learning you've been doing linguistics but particularly in English right yeah, yeah. at Glasgow Uni our course is mostly based on English yeah so that must be really interesting coming in um, as somebody who's learned English and yeah. finding all about all about all of our hang-ups and all yeah. of our kind of <laughs> our um yeah like our sort of social linguistic things my idea is that choirs are communities of practice mm-hmm. which i think that you're familiar with i think did you do a study yeah t- tell the listeners yes. tell the children um <laughs> so communities of practice well you can set me straight <laughs> we did have a long conversation about this before yes. um but communities of practice are groups of people getting together to do activities together spending a lot of time together regular on a regular basis which develop their own kind of culture if if that makes sense yeah 
That's yeah. Could you I agree? So. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I think that's a really good definition, yeah. Um, and I'm interested in choirs because obviously they are a community of practice, evidently, in that way, but then they also get together and use their vocal track together to sing with each other every week or, or bi-weekly or... Uh, bi-monthly yeah <laughs> fortnightly yeah. or whatever um and so i want to look at accommodation between singers in speech and i also want to look at accommodation in singing and see if we can find um evidence of that oh fun so kind of so the idea would be that possibly when people are coming together this way you might find that they come together in terms of the language they're using in speech and also in terms of the way they sing mm -hmm. that's really interesting and I suppose compared to other because there's been lots of studies on communities of practice and on this idea that when you are part of this group and you have this kind of shared culture you might have this shared way of speaking as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. um, but I guess the difference with your study is going to be these are people who are coming together and speaking together and maybe having this shared culture, but also really, really thinking about the way that they're using their vocal tracks exactly. in terms of singing. Yeah. So I've been asking people um, just to tell me about your favourite thing that you've learned about language this year. Well, probably if it's more Scottish context, it would be Scots itself as a language. Because mm -hmm. I was in high school and primary school, I was always taught as it was just bad English instead, which I always find is a bit hypocritical. Because so one day it's always bad English, but then we'd have to learn Robert Burns, and it'd be kind of prestigious. So it just it's just the more helpful to learn a bit more Scottish culture in that way. So I didn't I have no idea about like older Scots, because when I was in high school, I was always taught that people in Scotland always spoke English. It was always like a variety of English itself. So learning that has kind of helped more like a Scottish identity as well and identify it rather than just seeing as like bad Queen's English or what. Yeah, yeah like I think um, I was the same in school. Like we did learn about Scots, but we sort of, the implication was that it was spoken a long time ago. Yeah, And we yeah. never, or maybe in different parts of Scotland, like we never understood that what we were speaking of a long yeah, time would the, be Scots. Yeah, it's the same with us because I stayed in Paisley, which is side Glasgow. And I was taught like the more like Scots variety would be something closer to the Burns, like in Ayrshire. Mm. So the ones we were speaking were just a, like an accent in English. Thanks so much to Joe Pierce, Davy Wallace, Frankie McLeod, Anna Vertanen, Ed Marshall, and Aaron Quigley. And thanks again to my most excellent colleagues in English language and linguistics who have played a massive role in teaching me how to teach, helping me navigate new systems and feeding me very many biscuits this year. Thanks for listening. See you next time.